Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Thanks for coming. So we're going to have each um, reader introducing the next one, but I'm going to introduce the first, who is Nick Baccarella, who hails from Holmdel, New Jersey. Am I saying that right? Um, Nick has always dreamt of writing creatively, even if he gets paid in bags of popcorn for it. He's very interested in the intersection between arts and sport, as well as in the sociology of geography. Please welcome Nick Baccarelli. Uh, thank you, Professor Chandra. I don't know if this is high enough. but um, So uh, today I'm going to be reading a story called A Reasonable Man. It's about the degeneration of a hockey enforcer who is basically the guy who gets paid to beat people up on the ice. Um, as told from his perspective and from the perspective of an in-game commentator. So here is a reasonable man. (sighs) These crystals captivate me. Simple they may be, these crystals are more than the frozen forms of our necessity. They are more than drink coolers, injury cures, bringers of tragedy to the unfortunate winter driver. In them, I see my youth, a shade of a powerful boy with stars for eyes and aspirations. I see a landscape of giants, of trees that ignore Daedalus' warning and crash through the ceiling of our universe into the invisible beyond, of lakes that mimic oceans where time zones change from the east shore to west, of mountains, tundras, fields, and forests. And I see myself on the fringe of this landscape, at cliff's edge or river's mouth, always observing, always humbled, never speaking. All this lives in these crystals. Fredericks moves up the boards. If he can get past the blue line, he'll have an open look at... Oh boy, folks, something's brewing near the benches. To me, these crystals instill in me the will, the vigor to live. They are constant reminders of where I've been and where I am now. The luxuries I enjoy, the company I keep, these crystals alone have afforded me everything I know and hold dear. They are my friends who encourage, my parents who admonish, my teachers who urge, my lovers who reward. And this, all this, because they compel me to inflict that which is hateful and dark the associate of cave trolls and dictators alike. Hoo-wee! Is it getting ugly down there? I can't quite make, what, uh, make out what's going on, but fists are certainly flying. Not sure how it started, but if I had to hedge a guess, I'd, I'd say, wait, is that him? They compel me to inflict pain. It definitely is. Bancroft is right in the thick of it. My, oh my, he's busting noses like he's 20 all over again. You can hear knuckles breaking from the bleachers, and boy, if it isn't brutal... For all you hockey lifers out there, Cyrus Bancroft rides again. Funny, isn't it? Such a fruitful substance is fruitful only because it tells me to wound men, men like me, with homes and lawns and wives and children. Into me it breathes life, so I can hasten death. Almost looks like he's fighting for a new contract out there. Hey, Rick, the babysitter may be getting up there in years, but don't tell him that. But is there no beauty in pain? I've seen this sight before atop these crystals, a face, the work of nature and nature alone, turned art, a living portrait, colored like a mural and painted by hands, my hands. Yellow and purple harmonize in the background, an image of a docility unmatched in even the best Pollock. A violent red streaks across the canvas, a raider punctuating the calm and chasing away white squares from the scene, new refugees forced from their homes. Furiously, I craft until it is completed, content that this portrait has joined the hallowed ranks of my others. So focused am I that I barely notice when some wayward red sullies these crystals. Oh man, Bancroft is putting on a show out there. Kaminsky's face is an absolute mess. He's covered in blood. You can barely even tell what's what. Oh, but wait. Just hold on a second, folks. It doesn't appear over yet. Bancroft's taken a couple of shocks, shots. He seems a little dazed. A concerto of fuse does its best to disturb my concentration, but these musicians do not realize that they are only helping. A panel of critics chimes in as well half encouraging me toward completion and half hoping hoping I get nowhere close. But they, too, are distraction in name only. In fact, they've been features of my studio so long, I'm not sure how to work without them. They've begun to remind me of the bird songs from that landscape of my youth, melodies I'd wake up early just to hear. When I hear these sounds, simultaneously harmonious and cacophonous, I'm once again at that cliff's edge or river's mouth. When I hear these sounds, I know where I am. I know what I'm doing. These crystals are beneath me, and my canvas is before me. When I hear these sounds, I am at peace. Well, it seems the tide's turning out there. Bancroft's just getting clobbered. The element of surprise is gone, and oh no, folks, he's down. 
Bancroft is down. My, my, you hate to see this kind of thing happen, especially to one of the greats. But what is an artist to do about age? As the years climb, my faculties fall. I can no longer see the vividness of color. I struggle to hear those musicians and critics, a struggle that makes them even more distracting than they were at full volume. My hands run sluggish, unable to create what came so easily to them not so long ago. My studio reduces to a shambles. My, sh my passion becomes a job, a chore, difficult, impossible. The people that relied on me so heavily, those ever faithful critics, they'll wonder what's become of me, why I'm not as prolific or as perfect as I used to be. Slowly but surely, they'll realize what slowly seeped into my consciousness despite my best attempts to ignore it. They'll see the inability, the passivity I've tried to hide. They'll realize that I've become the canvas. And slowly but surely, one by one, they'll leave. They'll leave to find someone more dependable, someone who can give them what they crave, who can deliver without worry of failure. And all I'll do is watch, waiting for some homage, for recognition that I existed, that my art influenced someone. But it will never come. Those critics will have what they want, and their new savior will busy himself with their praise and affection, forgetting anyone came before him. I'll wait and wait until anonymity consumes me, not because I long for my glory days, but because there will be nothing else, no art, no attention, no love, to occupy my time. Well, after some of the most violent fighting I've ever seen in my 30 years in this sport, the refs have finally broken up. Each team's back to their bench. Several five-minute majors have been handed out, a couple of ejections. But don't worry, folks. We'll get back to hockey in just a minute. It's interesting to see what's going to happen with Cyrus Bancroft, eh, Kevin? One of the best enforcers I've ever seen. Never seen him take shots like that before, though. Maybe a sign to hang up the skates, possibly? You know, I had to make a similar call back when I was in, with Edmonton in 84. That landscape... That landscape seems distant to me now. I used to be able to describe the smell of the pines or the sound of the waterfall as winter thawed and time began to flow again. But not anymore. These crystals were once the seeds from which that landscape, from which everything grew. They don't seem that way now. They're just repositories for the ashes of those things, only there to prove they once were. These crystals are just ice. Our next reader is going to be Becky Evanson. Um, Rebecca is fluent in three languages, English, sarcasm, and salty mouth sailor. She spends her days as a diligent Berkeley undergrad with a passion for writing and her nights as a terribly dorky fanfic author. Nice. Also, also she is terrible at writing biographies. Here's <laughs> Becky Evanson. Man, that was bad. No, my biography, not the, sorry. Anyways, um, <laughs> thank you for having me here. Um, I'm going to read an excerpt from a story that actually doesn't have a title yet. Um, and all you need to know is that it's between an adult brother and sister, and um, their mom passed away when they were young, and they've been estranged. So um, here we go. Can you hear me okay? Jack had always been close to their mom, despite the fact that it made their father angry. The first time he raised a hand to either of them was the night after her funeral, when Jack wouldn't stop crying for her. It hurts to remember the feeling of him trembling in her arms, his hot tears soaking through her favorite purple Lisa Frank t-shirt, as their father shouted at them to stop whining because she'd never be back. She's dead. She's gone. Get over it. Jack screamed at him, an ear-splitting howl of rage that scared Cassie. Their father hauled Jack from her arms, and Cassie hadn't been able to do anything but cry. The next day, Jack had finger-shaped bruises on his scrawny little arms and a black eye clumsily covered with Cassie's dollar store makeup. They agreed then not to tell anyone, because the idea of getting taken away by CPS was scarier than whatever happened at home. Cassie has had the locket for years, but she's always kept it in the back of her jewelry box. She only took it out when she left home because she was afraid their dad would throw it away with the rest of their mom's stuff, but she's never worn it, not once. She looks at the heart in Jack's hand and thinks of the day it was given to her. Cassandra, I want to give you this, her mother says. They're sitting in her parents' room surrounded in a small pool of warm light from the bedside lamp. 
Cassie just got home from school and Jack's bus will drop him off soon. Their father won't be home for work and from work until seven. For now, it's just the two of them. Her mom reaches around the nape of her neck to unclasp the locket she's had for as long as Cassie can remember. When she holds it out to her, Cassie's hands feel cold and sweaty at the same time. Her mom drops the little gold heart in Cassie's clammy palm and smiles gently. Your grandma gave me that when you were born. There's a picture of her parents inside. Cassie is speechless, but she opens the locket and looks down at the picture of her great-grandparents on what must have been their wedding day. She clicks it shut and brushes a thumb across the worn filigree design on the outside. Her face is hot and wet with tears, and her lips tremble under the weight of her terror. I don't want you to die, she says. Her mom pulls her into a warm hug and shushes her, but the tears come anyway. I know, honey, I don't want to die either, she says, but I need you to promise me that you'll take care of Jackie. You're going to be the woman of the house and all that. Her mom laughs, but it crackles in her throat and she coughs. The cancer is spreading, and soon it'll just take over her body. No, Cassie protests. I don't want to, she says. I don't want to take your place. She drops her head into her mother's lap and cries until her lungs hurt and her nose is dripping snot into the white nightgown beneath her face. The front door opens and Cassie tries to pull herself together for Jack's sake. Her mother strokes a soft hand through her hair and speaks in an urgent whisper. You have to, Cassie. I may not like it, but you have to grow up and be there for Jackie. He'll need you so much when I'm gone. Cassie wipes the snot from her nose with the back of her hand and nods. Fine, okay, I promise. You do? I do, she says. A moment later, Jack bursts into the room and ran to lie on the bed with his arms around their mother's waist. Hi, Mom, he said. He didn't seem to notice the wet spot on her nightgown or the way Cassie's hands trembled around the locket. Why are you giving this to me now, Jack asks. Cassie shakes off the thoughts of the past to focus on her brother, no longer the cheerful young boy who would lose his happiness bit by bit until he was the serious-faced man sitting in front of her now. I want you to have it. Jack looks pale and he swallows hard, but he accepts the locket with a nod of gratitude. Okay, he says. The doctor is kind and courteous when he informs Cassie. I know this is hard news to hear, Miss Andrews, but there it is, he says. He looks sad like he regrets he's going to like he regrets having to tell someone she's going to die. And he probably does. Do you have someone to help you? Cassie's mind races through the extremely limited possibilities. JR, yeah, right. Her friend Melanie might do it, but she's got three kids and no husband, so taking care of Cassie would just be an enormous burden. Cassie sees so many people in her daily life, but nobody she'd call on to help her with this. She's going to die from cancer just like her mom, but it's going to take her a whole year and nobody will be there to hold her hand. She can already see her own funeral. A few people in church she's never been in a church she's never been to. Maybe some of the regulars from the restaurant who heard she died and came to pay their last respects because they don't have anything better to do. The doctor looks expectant and she just wants to get out of there, so she lies. Yeah, I do, she says. Oh, good, the doctor replies and reaches out to shake her hand. She notices a picture of Jack and a pretty woman hanging on the wall behind him just above his head. Who's that, she asks. Jack looks over his shoulder and a small smile flits across his face. That's Karen, he says. He looks happy and she's glad for him, but it makes something uncomfortable twist painfully in her stomach. Ah, Cassie says, have you two been together long? Jack dips his head and rubs the back of his neck like he's nervous. Yeah, well, about two years. It didn't get serious at first, but now we're thinking of getting married. Cassie can see where this is going, and maybe now isn't such a good time to tell him about the death sentence she'd been handed a week ago. Jack is happy now. He has a business, a girlfriend, and a promising future. She can't ask him to give any of that up to take care of her when she didn't stick around for him a decade ago. Congratulations, she says. Thanks, Jack replies. Cassie doesn't stay long after that, but she makes a trip up to the cemetery on the hill before she leaves town. Her parents aren't buried next to each other, so she stops at her mother's grave first. She lays a bouquet of white daisies from the Safeway in front of the tombstone and rubs a hand over the smooth marble. 
She doesn't say much except I'm sorry and I'll be seeing you soon. She walks across the hill to where her father is buried and sits down on the wet grass. It soaks through her jeans and makes her uncomfortable, but she sits and stares at the rough concrete with his name etched in it. Her eyes feel hot and itchy, but she refuses to cry over the mean bastard who loved the bottle more than his own children. Cassie will take the blame for abandoning her little brother with a man she knew would raise him with fists and belts, bruises and scars, but maybe today she did a good thing to make up for that. Maybe Jack would give their mom's locket to Karen, and they'd have kids someday, and Jack would never raise a hand to them. There's bitterness in her mouth when she stands. F*** you, old man. Thank you. Um, I am introducing Anna Guan. Anna is a graduating senior at Cal with a double major in English and Legal Studies. She is passionate about social justice issues and plans on attending law school in a year. Until then, she is interested in doing paralegal work, backup dancing, voice acting, bartending, and even writing the, night, the next Twilight series. She's just kidding about the backup dancing. That's why. <laughs> Thank you so much for introduction. Uh, I will be reading an excerpt from a story titled The Devil's Roll, which is actually um, inspired by death penalty case. Okay. In this scene, the protagonist, Carl, is awaiting uh, trial and is vi visited by his girlfriend and baby son. Elijah had just turned 13 months old when he uttered his first words. Love, Dada. What do you say, little Elijah? Carl pressed the phone against his ear hard, disbelieving what he had just heard. Love, Dada. Love, Dada. Elijah giggled. Carl wept like he had never had before in his life, not caring whether the inmates or correctional officers around him saw. Here was his baby son, separated by a glass in his birth, but still having love for his father. I love you too, Elijah, Carl managed to say into the phone. By the time Elijah was preoccupied by his mother's shiny earrings. A few months later, Carl's brother Roy came to visit him. Thank you for taking care of Ashley and Elijah, Roy. Carl said, don't mention it. Elijah is my nephew. I love him too. Listen, I know you're probably stressed by your trial coming up soon, but there's something important I got to tell you. Roy paused as if trying to find the right words to say. What is it? Carl pressed. It's Mama. She done gotten herself a stroke and is now in a coma. The words echoed in Carl's head, momentarily stunning him speechless. The world suddenly seemed to be spinning around him, and here he was, confined and unable to even visit his mother in the hospital. It's been some weeks now. We figured it'd be best if she recovered so you wouldn't have to know about it, but the doctor says it's not likely she'll ever wake up. Roy paused and waited for the message to sink in. Mama, was all Carl could muster. He was done crying. He cried all the tears out of his body, leaving him a dry well of unhappiness, darkness, and destituteness. He knew he had to stay strong, if not for himself, then for his family. I just don't know what to do, Roy said with his voice cracking. We both know how much suffering Mama's been through. She seems like she's dreaming of heaven already, so I think it's time to let her go up. So she'll be watching us from above and making sure I get out of here. Everything's going to be all right. Carl paused. Everything's going to be all right, he repeated. When do you start becoming so mature? Roy joked with tears in his eyes. Looks like I should call you older brother now. How the hell can you convict someone based on two contradictory testimonies from unreliable teenage boys with juvenile records themselves, one of which was drunk, no DNA supporting the murder, even the attempted rape, and a weapon that was never retrieved? Ariana said to John, waving papers filled with testimonies and so-called discovery. Look, hun, the witch has got a lot of tricks up her sleeve. All she needs is to keep exaggerating the murder's ruthlessness, show pictures of the victim's face, and then throw the victim impact statement. Boom, she's got an entire jury on her side. But can't we do something? Well, we're trying, aren't we? But Carl's guilt is definitely not, a not beyond a reasonable doubt. Look, as long as Carl isn't fully cooperating with us, then we can't do anything. He won't even try to be honest with us. How can we maintain his innocence if he can't even tell us whether he did it or not? Then make sure the jury sees through Miranda's bullshit. John let out a deep sigh and looked at Ariana warily. He always knew her to be very passionate about this type of work, but quite frankly, John was tired. It was always the same. 
He tried tearing apart the credibility of each evidence, objecting whenever he could, and gathering an army of expert witnesses, but yet he never won a single case. It was San Diego County, after all, one of the most conservative places in California. Whoever was arrested and put in trial was already deemed guilty, reversing the age-old maxim of innocent until proven guilty. Plus, the DA already has a clear advantage whenever he or she brought cases to trial. It's because you're no Johnny Cochran. You're just John, he thought. At this point, they seem to be doing good a job of pinning on him or at least securing a stand-in that has suffered for his grievous murder. Punishing for punishment's sake. Where's the justice, Ariana said with disgust. The only justice in the DA's eyes is avoiding prosecutorial misconduct and ensuring due process is flawless. Of course, Miranda's got a neck for fitting the crime to the punishment. John hated how powerless he felt against Miranda. Or filling her huge fucking ego, Ariana snapped. And I will skip the trial. Um, John was right. Carl thought as he now sat in a bunk of his new cell at San Quentin death row. A conviction ultimately led to a death sentence. He had sat quietly, emotionless, as his attorney had directed him to do during most of his trial. The only time he refused to be present was during the penalty phase. Twelve yeses for his execution. What am I going to do, Carl screamed in his head. Lately, he had become more and more laconic. After all, what's the point of speaking up or even speaking for himself? That he was actually innocent? That Gary and Derek conspired to frame him? That he was trying to protect his family? What would happen to Elijah without a father, though? A father whose only hope is to buy time so he could live one day longer, to see his son grow a little bit bigger. But it was always through a glass, always separated by something. These past few years have been nothing but bars, hostile correctional officers, and brutal inmates. It was hard for Carl to even imagine an open and free world exists. If I could turn back time, then I'd be smarter about the people I hung out with and the so-called friends I made, Carl lamented. That's the advice I give my son. Carl was nearly driven insane every single day, wishing he could see his son and mother of his child more often. He wondered what it would be like if the appeals failed and his brother took over for him. Would Elijah ever remember his real father? Then he felt really selfish for still being locked up instead of working, supporting his family in the outside world. His only comfort came from knowing his son was safe, healthy, and taken care of. Carl was never a religious man, but he spontaneously knelt on the concrete ground, clapped his hands together, and prayed with tears streaming down his face. Dear God, please hear me out. Sometimes I wonder why my mom would pray to you, but now understand. Even if the whole world thinks I'm guilty, I hope my family will always maintain my innocence in their hearts and be positively affected by the changed person I am. I ain't a boy no more, but a man. Being this close to death has never made me feel more grateful for the fact I'm still alive today. I hope my son Elijah will have chances I never had and become a good man himself. If my sacrifice means anything, then please grant me this. Amen. And now I represent the next reader, Andrew David King. Andrew is a sophomore studying English and philosophy. He's the business manager of the Berkeley Poetry Review. And he received the university's Julia Keith Shrout Story Prize for the 2011 to 2000 school year, beating me by two places. <laughs> so um, I'm going to read an excerpt from a novella in progress uh, tentatively titled um, Ghost Notes. And it's about a, um, a young man named Nathan who moves to Iowa City to take a job in a warehouse and who finds himself sort of reevaluating um, his life after an encounter with a traveling guitarist prompts him to sort of look back on his own musical past. <clears throat> when the house was silent, the guitar offered him sound. He played it before his parents split and again when they got back together, the period between absent of music. It was during that time his mother invited Jonathan over, a tall drifter-looking guy whose wardrobe combinations often included sandals and scarves on the same day. She told Nathan she met him in a coffee shop three blocks from the house. He asked no questions. Jonathan played the trombone and brought the thing with him wherever he went, that monstrously bright extrusion of brass with the etched incarnations blooming along the inside of the horn. In the carnation's leaves, three initials nested, but he never spoke of them. 
On several occasions, he offered to play along to Nathan if he wanted to provide the accompaniment, and so they played, his hands chunking out notes while the trombone squalled. He could feel its tones as well as hear them. The man's interest in Nathan thrilled him, but before he could hardly take note of it, the thrill brittled into hate. He'd betrayed the silence he swore to maintain throughout his parents' separation, Jonathan and Judas egging him on, and afterward the guitar could offer him nothing but a reminder of his weakness. He sat in the corner of his room those months and listened to Monk and Davis and Parker as loud as he could, tried to hate jazz, cure himself of all false consolations. Told himself what he'd heard was the snare drum snap and not the door to his parents' bedroom clicking shut. Tried not to imagine the trombone left leaned against the hallway wall, a guard dog ready to swallow him into the flowered darkness of its mouth. As he reached for the door, he saw himself, not himself in that moment, but himself ten years earlier, a black Gibson slung over his shoulder, the strap with the lightning bolt printed on it, zapping down the side of his body and toward his fingers, flurrying in an imitation of trills. It was all so much imitation. When he couldn't master a song, he'd wrap the headphones around his skull and blast riffs while he stood in front of the mirror and strummed. It was dissonance, but he heard melody. He played nothing but ghost strains, invisible as the notes on sheet music that served as placeholders but were never played. In that cage of a room with its hardwood floors and barely enough space for two grown humans, he grew dizzy on his own movement and shadow. All that practice, and for what? Guitar and driving, and how to walk so that girls would notice him. The hours he'd sat silent behind the wheel of his father's truck, drove onward down roads he knew would end, practiced turning on a dime in parking lots enslaved to the light of a single halogen. But then, as much as now, he understood all that he was and would ever be, if nothing else, just a fool stumbling from one doorknob to the next. And now I'm going to skip to the scene where he just finally decides to go to storage and get his guitar out. The gate was unlocked and the man inside just about to clock out, but Nathan's headlights flashed against the dirty windows of his office and he came outside, key in hand. Nathan parked and showed him the paper, his driver's license. Security guard said that there had been a lot of burglars gaming the place lately and the daytime employees weren't paid enough to look twice at anything. Signed to the back of an old gum wrapper for the man so he could see it really was his signature. The man, who had Nathan's frame but twice as much meat on it, went back inside the office and grabbed the key to number 41 from a drawer. You got only as long as I got, he said, his voice like that from a throat that had been hurt but healed wrong. He pointed to the clock, 15 minutes or less. It would have to be enough. I need to make sure I get home what with this weather. The man looked outside and the Mac at Nathan as if he were crazy to wait for the snow to lean any taller. Gotcha. The man looked irritated. He wiped some grease off the seat of his pants and said, You know, let me save you some time. It's an awful big place and yours is all the way across. Nathan couldn't tell what this meant until he followed the man to a golf cart that had been converted into a toolbox with a motor attached. He was lucky, anyway. The man had said nothing about the unpaid bill for the last two months since the office computer had already been turned off. He slid onto the mucked-up seat and grabbed the railing. They zipped to the concrete rows. The guard made a tight circle and slammed the brakes down right in front of his unit. Here you go, he said. I don't run this place. I just watch. The other guy skipped out early. I'll be back in ten to get you. They both stepped out, and he handed the key to Nathan. Make sure you don't lose this. He nodded. The key felt round and tiny as a coin in his hand. He gripped it until its metal felt warm. There was nothing inside the unit but a couch that wouldn't fit into the apartment, a hideous lamp, the impractically big stereo speakers his late grandmother had given to him and which he couldn't bring himself to sell. The guitar had to be there, somewhere in the tangle. He was positive he'd left the Les Paul and the Stratocaster back home, where they were probably in the closets of the neighborhood kids now, given away by his parents. The Malkin triplets were just babies when he was in high school, but by now they were grown enough to sit on a drum throne or play a lick. The speed of time overtook him, and he half expected to open the door to find a pyramid of dust where everything had leaned in on itself and crumbled. The tin tuning heads and the strings would be all he'd have to take home. Home, he mouthed. He shivered, but only half from the cold. Reaching down, he caught the latch, cut his hand fumbling the lock loose right, and threw open the door as hard as he could. A muscle in his back yelped. The storage compartment, big as a decent-sized garage, opened like a jaw unhinging. What was previously a wall of reflective steel slats, each panning back at him the eye-burning dots of the security lights, was a gap of dull darkness. Even worse than darkness. Blankness. 
It wasn't so dark yet that sight was an impossibility, but it nearly was, and he couldn't make out anything, none of the shapes he'd expected to snap into recognition. He lifted an ungloved hand to shield his face. Here it was, his old acoustic. Here it had to be, caught in a pitch-black crevice or behind the stack of rat-chewed and cobwebbed containers. He stood silent as the temperature sucked the feeling from his face and watched the rest of another man's life come into view, the gravity of some familiar music roping itself around his feet, yanking him closer. He was no longer sure it was a good idea to have come, but he stepped forward, smelled the moistness of the ice and the staleness of the fabric, wrapped his hand around the string of the unit, single incandescent, and pulled. Thank you. I'm here to introduce uh, Zoe uh, Pollock. A native of Berkeley, Zoe Pollock is a Berkeley High School graduate and a second-year English major. Marilyn Robinson's Housekeeping is one of her favorite books, and a set of Zoe short films partly inspired by that novel screened at the San Francisco Jewish Film Festival in the summer of 2010. Please welcome Zoe. Thanks, Andrew. Um, So I'm going to be reading an excerpt from a story called Trajectory. Denise leaned back in her seat. She didn't know why, but her memory drifted to the beginning of her career as a permanent driver for city transit. She reviewed the good mornings and thank yous spoken by her passengers as they entered and exited the bus. These utterances had prevented her from living in her own thoughts for sustained periods of time, but she didn't mind getting interrupted. In fact, she liked this contact with commuters. The exchanges were small, but they offered a glimpse into her passengers' lives. Denise had returned each address with a correspondingly quick response, but would follow people's activity in the mirror positioned above her. She'd like to note differences in the way individuals carried themselves. Elderly men and women tended to shuffle to the nearest seats, probably worried she would start driving before they had a chance to sit down. Most of the time, solitary teenagers paced swiftly past the borders of Denise's mirror, so she could only speculate that they settled into the back of the bus to text or listen to their iPods in quiet. School children often chose the seats right behind Denise, perhaps to escape the stares of strangers, many of whom paid closer attention to the children walking past them than they did other adults. Almost no one had met her gaze in the mirror. Denise took her cell phone out from her purse to check the time. She had another 20 minutes to wait for the technician, and she started to compose the sentences that would convey the details of the accident. As she reached to put the phone away, it fell from her hand, rattling as it met the floor. She thought of the tinny clang of quarters and dimes dropped into the bus's change machine, about the taillights of other cars blushing in front of her when she was stuck in traffic, the rising pitch of her motor as the traffic lessened, letting the streets rush over her like liquid as she built up momentum, the long blocks without stops, where she turned the pedestrians outside into competitors in a race, the rush she felt at approaching and eclipsing them. Denise stepped outside and sat at the stop next to her bus. Empty, it seemed larger now than when she had driven it, too large for one person to control alone. Another bus came and inched around her own. The driver put her hand up in acknowledgement, and Denise waved back, but her colleague wasn't looking. The woman pulled into the next stop, and Denise watched as the passengers boarded, no longer hers. The bus closed its doors, and she could see the commuters spread out into the back area. She tried to hang on to each outline, the two older women, the teenage couple, the college student, but the figures were first to disappear as the bus grew smaller and smaller. For a moment, Denise could make out the illuminated number on the back of the vehicle, even though the passengers had already blurred into the darkening window. She considered how the people merged with the vessel of the bus once they stepped inside. She thought about how each stop changed the combination of travelers and how eventually none would remain. But for the next few blocks, all of them would stay united in this space. They would move onward together, advancing toward individual destinations, but still no less unified and looking forward to what existed ahead. Thank you. Um, So the next reader is Gabriel Thibodeau. Um, Gabriel completed his English degree in December of last year. He currently works as a writer and creative content developer for a children's media company called Little Passports. This summer, he'll move to Los Angeles to follow his dream of eating ramen as a writer and actor. Thanks, Zoe. Uh, Hi, everyone. Uh, I will be reading a few excerpts from a story I'm actually currently writing right now called Losers Weepers. 
uh, I usually hesitate when it comes to reading works in progress, but this story was actually largely inspired by a lot of the studies that I did here at Berkeley. I'm really fascinated with fascination with um, fixation and compulsion and obsession and uh, all other kinds of writers, seminary type things. And this is kind of the culmination of that, so I thought it was fitting to read today. Um, I'll also mention that this story really creeps me out. <laughs> it's um, been kind of unsettling to write, but I think that's why I keep writing it. So uh, I hope it creeps you out as much as it creeps me out, I guess. Um, so these are some passages from Losers Weepers. He lost his first finger in the lawnmower. I told you. <laughs> he lost his first finger in the lawnmower. With its belly of blades exposed to the air, the steel spinning and smiling and singing, Raymond just couldn't resist. Even still, he had to work up to it. He stared at the blades like pinwheels, like teeth, and counted to ten, ticking the numbers off on his fingers. He counted to ten a second time, a third, and after the sixth, he took a breath and jabbed his hand forward. The lawnmower plucked his finger like a flower petal. A tug and a release, and then it was gone, just a space on his left hand where the index used to be. At first, all Raymond could think about was Christmas, the way the blood dressed the grass in drops like liquid cranberries, garland, necklaces. Then there was the pain, a liquid all its own flooding in. It wasn't sharp like he'd expected it to be, but deep and wise. It knew things pains shouldn't know, like how Raymond regretted it before it happened, but was pleased he had done it. It knew slithery things, too, how to whip through the body in seconds and furling from the wrist up the arm back down to the no more finger, abating suddenly only to throb its way back into his stomach and teeth. Raymond crumpled and screamed. He screamed because of the pain, because the pain was so smart, because he could almost still feel his finger pointing at something inside of the lawnmower, but mostly he screamed because he knew he would do it again. It's hard to explain so many missing fingers. People look at you and simply can't imagine where they've gone. They see you in the supermarket and wonder how you button your shirt in the morning, or how you tie your shoes, how you masturbate. They look at you and suddenly want to shake your hand just to see how it would feel. Raymond used to stare at his hands the way that some people stare at their faces in mirrors. After a certain amount of time, the physiology starts to look like a mistake. Who decided that hands should look like this? If he discarded his knowledge of fingers, what he used them for, the way they wiggled and waved, if he ignored the overpowering familiarity he felt toward his humanness, Raymond's hands looked horrifying. They looked like science experiments. They looked webless, like bird feet without the web, alien appendages from a distant swamp planet. Any other person would reject these thoughts. They'd touch them maybe once and shrug, move on. Raymond kept them, though. The thoughts, that is. He didn't keep his fingers. Those he gave away. That's how Raymond thought of it, anyway. Like a letting go, a sending off, a gift. It made perfect sense to him. The pointing still mattered, was still somehow connected to him. And what a feeling, what a valuable thing, the directing of attention. Hey, look at that. And how much more powerful, how much more effective when Raymond wasn't there to do it. To give it muddied human purpose, to wiggle it back and forth at the knuckle. How still and straight the pointing was now. How perfectly certain. There. That. Sometimes he wished he could remember. But mostly he was calm, swelling with a syrupy mix of peace and pride. He marveled at all the things he might be pointing at. All the directions his body faced. He was a compass rose. A captain's wheel spinning clockwise, counterclockwise. Back and forth. Thanks. And now I have the pleasure of introducing our next reader, Danielle Truppi. Uh, Danielle comes to us from Vikram Chandra's Introduction to Short Fiction class. She's a graduating senior art practice major with a minor in English and works as the editor-in-chief for the Cow Literature Arts Magazine. So welcome, Danielle. Oh, thank you. Um, I will read two small excerpts from a, short, a story I wrote in class called Half and Half. Uh, Evelyn Strand stood in front of the wall of milk and tried to identify what made her face look so young. 
running her finger along her jaw on the glass door. She measured the relative distances between her lips and chin, nose and lips, eyes and nose, fluorescent tubes pressed down against plastic sheeting above her. A woman approached the neighboring door and extended a large dimpled arm to retrieve her Italian sweet cream creamer. She didn't pause to interrogate Evelyn with her finger on the glass. The woman continued on behind Evelyn, pushing a cart that shook against itself, six boxes of mashed potatoes, and a can of mandarin oranges. Individually, Evelyn's features seemed accurately aged. Her nose was self-contained, compact, and charming. Her chin was a lemon underneath her lips, her cheeks bridges, round, tapered flesh. Evelyn had been sent to get the milk while her mother continued to scrutinize produce on the other side of the store. Evelyn finally broke contact with Evelyn on the door and, after checking all of the date stamps, removed a half gallon of 1%. She felt guilty removing the milk from its environment, separating it from its brothers, but she assured the milk it would soon become a welcomed member of the Strand refrigerator. Compact sealed, the cold pulled the door closed, rubber sealed, and the interior glass turned opaque, obscuring the cartons so Evelyn could see only her unreasonably round little face. She left to rejoin her mother with the hand, handle of cold textured plastic balanced on a hooked forefinger. White rectangles of light rushed past her on the linoleum as her feet pushed her forward in sweaty, uncooperative sandals. At the end of the snack and soda aisle, there was a thin young woman in front of the Entman's desserts, suspended in decision-making. Her face was made of long, gracefully converging planes of womanhood, not the kind of womanhood of mothers or sweet cream by the milk, but of movie protagonists and some waitresses. Evelyn regarded, <laughs> retarded her gait to a silent, self-conscious shuffle, useless in curiosity and admiration. There was a verticality to this woman, Evelyn deeply hoped to achieve someday. She was probably an excellent public speaker. She probably read the newspaper every morning. She would probably return to her own apartment where she would unpack whichever treat she had chosen. It would set up residence in her refrigerator, and she could access this treat at will, with discretion, of course, but without having to wait for a parental offering or allocated dessert time in the form of perfectly modest, predetermined serving sizes, she surely engages regularly with her neighbors in a perfectly tailored version of friendliness for each encounter. The landlord receives a solemn smile. The next door something specialist gets a relevant checkup question regarding his studies. She understands he is at his best when he is allowed to exhibit whatever emerges from the deep vat of that, his particular subdivision of genius. The next door, somebody else's grandmother gets holiday cookies and strategically silent nodding. A young man, a man younger than his shirt, rounded the corner and was also stopped by the Lady Entman. He turned to face the Danishes and donuts and posed in parody of the woman's decision-making with infuriating familiarity and disrespectful closeness. Oh, don't do it. It's not worth it, he laughed. The woman's face fell. Thank you. <laughs> I would like to introduce Jenny Shea. Jenny is finishing her last semester as an English major at Cal. This year, she received the Irving Prize for American Wit and Humor and the Crothers Prize in Literary Composition. She will be attending the MFA program in fiction at Portland State University in the fall, and it's very impressive. <laughs> Thank you, Danielle. Um, I've seen a little bit of Danielle's art, and now I've heard her writing, and they're very analogous. They're both, they've got that, that spark. Um, thank you, everyone, for being here, and thank you, Beverly for, and Chandra, for, put, for putting this together. Um, I'm reading today from Carry On. Um, which is from the point of view of a TSA agent. And what you should know about him is that he is, he's kind of a bummer. Um, he, like, he finds solace in kind of the airport regulations that he's working around, and part of that comes from his childhood and his dad, who is a cop in Eugene, Oregon. 
and his dad on the job um, inadvertently broke up a party that caused the protagonist's um, best friend, Kenny, to drive off and um, basically get into a car accident that, that kills him. So he has this very... Um, he has this wariness about what is right and um, regulation at the same time that he kind of feels compelled to um, follow it. So I'm just reading from the first couple pages. Alice, the woman with the oversized chin who stands at the metal detector, tells me flight AC-760 from Madrid Barajas is delayed for aircraft inspection, having hit an electrical storm over Boston. She's been trying to start a conversation with me for the past half hour when I last sighed, she probably pities me, the guy who slumps into his chair every morning and takes regular bathroom breaks until the end of the day, who's never mentioned plans after work. From the outside, it must look pretty bleak. It's not uncommon, I reply, the sooner to restore silence. Planes are natural conductors. People in line at the security screaming, screening are thumbing their phones with slack faces, and children cling to the loose denim at their parents' knees. No one pays me any attention. At this point, I'm just another piece of equipment they have to clear before they're allowed airside, my face another hoop to jump through. Sometimes when people hear that I'm a screening officer, they make an effort to seem interested and ask whether I've ever caught someone, com smug someone smuggling contraband or have ever screened someone like Sean Penn, and what did he have in his bag, and was he a dick in real life? I told them no, but once I did recognize the magician Lance Burton on his way back from Las Vegas, his face was eclipsed by the bill of his baseball cap. What I could see of it was deeply pockmarked and the color of dough. My dad and I had watched him perform on a family trip to Vegas back in 98, years before Kenny died, and we lost interest in things like that. On stage, he had worn a black suit and cued his assistance with a jaunty cock of the cane. I spent the rest of that summer learning card tricks until my dad told me to stop goofing around. I'm good at what I do. There's not much to it besides following directions. What is acceptable and unacceptable in carry-on luggage is clearly delineated by the government. During training, I ran a finger down the list of prohibited items every night like a kid saying his prayers. No liquids, aerosols, or gels over 100 milliliters. This includes aftershave, snow globes, chocolate spread, liquid mascara, cologne. No butane cylinders, no billiard cues, no animal repellents, no fire extinguishers, no sabers, which belong in your checked luggage. No black and smokeless powders. No morning stars or shuriken. No, which, no paint. No enamel, lacquer, liquid filler, paint thinner, stain, shellac, varnish, spray paint, or solvent-based paint. No belts made with fake bullets. No perfume bottles shaped like grenades. No meat thermometers. No constant companions. No telescoping spring-loaded batons. And yes, people have attempted to board with these items in the past. Roderick, who's looking over passports at his post, says something that makes an aging woman laugh. Her face looks like a dumpling, soft and bloated at the edges. She gets in line and steps on the heels of her purple Crocs to take them off. When it's her turn, she places her leather handbag and her backpack into a plastic bin and sends it off with a little shove towards the x-ray. She waits in front of the metal detector with her toes curled on the cold floor. The second, the second question people ask after I've disappointed them is what I see on the monitor, and I have to explain how the dual-energy X-ray system works. What happens is the conveyor belt takes your bag past a machine that shoots X-rays ranging from 140 to 160 kilovolt peak, KVP. The higher the KVP, the further the X-ray penetrates. Since different materials absorb radiation differently, each object shows up distinctly on my monitor. Organic materials are coated orange, inorganic materials are green, and metal is purple. Most, explosive, most explosives are organic, so that's what I'm primarily concerned with. What looks like the crosshatch bottom of a sneaker may actually be part of an improvised explosive device. They're pretty to look at, the colors. If I'm not careful, I can convince myself that I'm looking at the pale reflection of a stained glass window, the skeleton of a strange beast, a bag of crushed flowers. Alice at the metal detector beckons the dumpling-faced woman forward. She checks out okay. She beams at me before slinging the handbag onto her shoulder, and I swivel away in my chair. It's important to remain professional. Some of the officers will attempt to small talk with the customers when the traffic dies down, 
or they'll smirk at each other when someone trips over a duffel bag. Me, though, I'm quiet. I like to examine the monitor with just the edge of my mind running and allow the rest of it to think about other things. The grandmother called this moving furniture in the attic. Most of the time, it's very pleasant to sit here in my blue uniform, performing my cog-like function, and think. It's only when something goes wrong that I have to really look at the person in front of me. Last week, for example, I realized that the woman with the red Samsonite bag had a maroon birthmark on her temple. She was attractive, though I'm not sure she would have been without that birthmark. She probably didn't know that she had two butane lighters in her luggage, or that the airport even had a policy limiting the count to one for personal use. Her x-ray exposed a bottle of sleeping pills or aspirin, an electric typewriter, which I thought was kind of cute, a couple paperbacks. She was a writer, I guessed. She had packed everything impeccably. All of her clothes were rolled up. Between each layer of clothing, she had hidden jewelry, bracelets and rings, and a string of pearls snaking towards the bottom corner. From the monitor, it looked like a treasure chest. Tucked neatly into the heart of this chest were a pair of shoes, a child's. Leaning in, I made out that they were a girl's ballet shoes, probably for a seven-year-old. You get a feel for the particulars after a couple years at the monitor. Then I understood that all the jewelry was miniature as well, made to encircle small wrists and hang on the plunk ends of small ears. I would never have given any of this a second glance if not for the two lighters zipped into the outside pocket of this woman's suitcase. I would never have smelled the tart smell of wine on her body or seen that mournful bow in her lips and started to think about why she was going away to write with the little girl's dancing shoes at the most protected part of her, and of course I came to the saddest conclusions. Ma'am, please open your suitcase for further inspection, I said. She looked at me as if I'd asked her to move her top. She flushed and the skin around her collarbones pinkened. It'll just take a second, ma'am, airport, airport procedure, I tossed in. When I asked her if she preferred me to throw away the green lighter or the blue lighter, I could tell that she hated me and wanted to tell me to put both those lighters in an offensive place. She put both hands over her eyes and sighed, Green, I guess. After she had gone, I felt sick and wondered if I couldn't have made an exception, and that made me think about Kenny, and how afterwards kids had passed me crumpled notes that said, fuck the pigs, which made me think about dad. So it's important to remain professional. Thank you. Okay, that was wonderful. Thank you, everyone. Let's have a last round of applause for our readers, Nick Baccarella, Rebecca Evenson, Anna Guan, Andrew David King, Zoe Pollock, Gabriel Thibodeau, Danielle Truppi, and Jenny Shea. Thank you all. And I hope to see you back here in September when we kick off another season of Story Hour. Please find us on Facebook. That's where we'll announce our lineup as the authors sign on. Thanks again for coming here. Good luck with the rest of your semester. Good night. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.